The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. And while you are uh, turning to Acts 21, just let me bring you up to speed. Some of you are visiting with us. I met some visitors this morning. Thanks for being here. If you're a visitor for the first time, or maybe it's been a while since you've been with us, we thank God that you're here. Uh, with us, or if you've been just a regular member, you've been out for a while, traveling, vacation, that happens during summertime. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts in the New Testament. We started in chapter 1 many months ago, and it's 28 chapters in your English Bible. It was written by Luke 2,000 years ago. He was a, a friend of the Apostle Paul, actually an associate of the Apostle Paul. He was the personal physician, doctor, medical doctor of the Apostle Paul, and in around the 60s A.D., he, he wrote this book, and it has been preserved for 2,000 years. Absolutely amazing. So we're studying a 2,000-year-old document, and because God moved Luke along as he wrote it, as Luke wrote it, it was without error. It was completely accurate. And Luke actually relied on a lot of eyewitnesses at the time because he tells us he did, and he himself was an eyewitness of many of these events. And then God in his grace has preserved this book for us for 2,000 years. And so we can depend on what we're reading today is actually true history. It's amazing. And it's the, the book of Acts is the story of the church. How did Christianity begin? And it started 2,000 years ago with the person of Jesus Christ who came to die for sin. That's why Jesus came. You don't have to feel sorry for Jesus like I did for about 19 years of my life as I grew up a Catholic, but I never studied the Bible that was my story, 12 years of Catholic school, Catholic church, 19 years. But I never studied the Bible. I just, But I heard stories about Jesus, and I always felt sorry for Jesus that he, had to, that he died. It's like, man, why, why didn't the other 11 guys, like, tackle Judas and make it not happen? Or why didn't he run from the soldiers? And why didn't somebody do something? Why didn't Pilate let him go? Why did Pilate do that? I mean, I distinctly remember that, like, in high school, thinking that way. Well, that wasn't God's plan. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus came to die. That's why he came. It wasn't an afterthought. As a matter of fact, that was the plan before he was born. The whole Testament for thousands of years predicted that he would come to die. And before the world was even created, Jesus with the Father and the Spirit in eternity past, before humans existed, before the world was created, before angels were around, the triune God of the universe determined to send Jesus to the earth to die for sin. That is God's solutions for the problem of humanity. And so when we come to the New Testament, we read about this Jesus who came in fulfillment of these eternal plans that God had, prophecies in the Old Testament, and he came, he was born as the Messiah. He did not have a human dad. He only had a human mom, which is a miracle because he was God. God came down from heaven, took on a human body. Jesus was fully God in a human body. He had no sin. He was totally different. And he was the God-man, the Savior. And that's what the four Gospels are about in the New Testament. And he served his purpose. He came to die. He did die. He died when he was 33 years old on the cross, just as he planned, just as was predicted. And he died on the cross on a Friday, got crucified. He was there on the cross publicly in front of everybody in Jerusalem for over six hours in fulfillment of the scriptures. And those around the cross were mocking him for the most part. Yet he was doing it 
uh, in purpose and fulfillment of God's plan. God the Father was looking down from heaven, punishing Jesus while he was on the cross. So Jesus was punished not just with nails in his hands, nails in his feet. He was spiritually absorbing the wrath of God the Father in heaven. God the Father was punishing the sin of the world by punishing Jesus as our substitute. But that's the way it was supposed to happen. You're not supposed to feel sorry for Jesus. He orchestrated his own death in eternity past. Absolutely amazing. He died. Then he was buried. He rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He was raised by the Father. He raised himself from the dead. Think of that. No man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly raise it up again. He said in John chapter 10, 17 and 18. He's in total control. Jesus is sovereign. He is the Lord. So he raised himself from the dead in fulfillment of Scripture, and then he raised in a supernatural resurrection body, and then he appeared to his apostles, and then he began to give them the mission of the church because he said, I'm leaving in 40 days. I'm going back to heaven where I came from, and he did. And that's where the book of Acts begins. And that's where Luke picks up. At the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church began about 30 A.D. with the 12 apostles and some of their friends and the church exploded in terms of its growth starting in jerusalem as christians went out and started telling everybody else the gospel the good news about what jesus has done for sinners and there were many who believed but there was even greater resistance to that message as they're going out saying you are sinful you are sinful you need a savior you can't go to heaven without god that made people mad some believed but most rejected and got angry one of the jews in jerusalem who got very angry was saul a young man a jewish rabbi He hated the Christians. He despised them. He began persecuting Christians. He began killing Christians, including women, dragging them for miles, throwing them into prison, beating them. We've covered all this. Saul spearheaded a persecution in Jerusalem in the time of the early church against Christianity. And after a couple of years, Jesus said, okay, that's it. This guy is out of control. And Jesus came down from heaven and confronted this Saul guy to his face from heaven knocked him to the ground, made him blind. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Said the Lord Jesus. And then he saved Saul and he turned him into a Christian. Acts chapter 9. And Saul went blind and Saul became Paul. And he goes from murderer, Christian killer to now apostle of Jesus Christ, who himself will be persecuted like no other Christian in the history of of the faith, ironically. And Jesus told him that from the word go. In Acts chapter 9, he, he told Ananias, uh, a friend of Paul, you need to tell Paul, he's an apostle now, he, he works for me, don't be afraid of him, but you need to let Paul know that he's going to represent me, he's going to be an apostle, and he is going to suffer severely for my name. So here it is about 35 AD, and that's how Paul's ministry began as an apostle. Ex-con, Former murderer, filled with hate, invaded by the grace and mercy of God, forgiven of all of his sins, that is the the God that we have. It doesn't matter what sin you've done in the past. There is no worse sinner or criminal than the Apostle Paul. He said that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I am the worst, yet I got saved. So there's hope for everybody else on planet Earth, and therefore I'm going to give my life sharing the good news with these sinful people. 
And Jesus told him, you're going to suffer. So in 35 AD, Paul begins his ministry, and then he goes on three mission trips pretty much around the world, planting churches, and everywhere he goes, he goes into a Jewish synagogue, preaches the gospel, they get mad at him, they chase him out, and sometimes they beat him up, sometimes they drag him, kick him out of town, and sometimes they try to kill him. And that's what he's been doing now for 20 years. So now we are in Acts chapter 21, and all we've been doing is watching the Apostle Paul go around the world, going into all these Gentile and Greek cities, people who've never heard of the Old Testament before, for the most part, except the Jews in the synagogues, telling everybody about Jesus, and he's getting the same reception everywhere he goes. Some people believe, mostly it's the Jew, the Gentiles believe, some Jews believe, but mostly the Jews, they're getting hostile. And they try to shut him down. And he's going for, in many of the cities he's getting shut down. He got shut down in Thessalonica just in, in three months, and they said, you can never come back here again. And as far as we know, he was never allowed in Thessalonica again. And this is going on for 20 years. That characterizes his 20-year ministry. Now we're in Acts chapter 21, and Paul now, he's heading back after his third missionary journey, spending three years in Ephesus, planning a church, one of the largest cities in its day. And now he tells all the saints, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And they're all like, Paul, you can't do that. Remember the last two times you were in Jerusalem, the Jews who hated you tried to kill you. If you go back there again, you will get killed. And he said, yeah, probably. I don't serve myself. I serve Jesus. That's why he called me 20 years ago. When he saved me, he told me I must suffer for him. So we've seen that in Acts chapter 20 and the first 17 verses of Acts 21. So Paul's making this journey a thousand miles back to Jerusalem, the hub and the headquarters of where Christianity began, but also where the temple is and the hub and the headquarters of where these very zealous, unbelieving Jews are that hate Christianity and hate Paul every time they see him. So Paul takes a ship, goes across the Mediterranean, makes it to the coast, spends some time in Caesarea for about a week, and then he makes his way to Jerusalem. We saw that last week. And he arrives in Jerusalem to visit the church, and he's got about 10, 12 of his Christian brothers with him, and he has a bunch of money that he collected from all other Christians and gave a relief fund to the church in Jerusalem, and they're all celebrating and rejoicing. And then Paul meets with the Christian elders and James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he shares with James and the elders in a private room, probably in James's home, and it says that Paul shared one by one all the things that God had done through him. That's a lot of stuff. That's three years of ministry. One by one. That probably took hours. Count your blessings one by one. That's a song, and it probably came from Paul doing that. One by one. And James, who was the head of the elders in the Jerusalem church, and the elders rejoiced and celebrated with Paul. This is awesome. This is amazing. And, they're, and they glorified God, and they were worshiping. God, thank you for using Paul, the former Christian killer, to bring the gospel to the world. Now, now Paul, we got some bad news. And then they shared it. There are rumors about you being spread. There are actually rumors by professing Christians about you that have been circulated for decades. And it's coming from Jewish people. Some of these profess to be Jewish Christians. And they are telling, especially all these Jews in Jerusalem, that you don't, since you became a Christian, you abandoned your Judaism. That since you became a Christian, you don't believe in the Old Testament anymore. You don't believe in Moses anymore. You don't, you despise the temple. And when people become Christians and they're former Jews, you tell them, don't go to temple anymore and don't circumcise your children anymore. And you speak against the temple and the law and the Old Testament and the Bible and Moses. 
That's what people have heard about you, and that, they're believing it. So there's a lot of Jewish people, even Christians here in Jerusalem. They don't know you, Paul, but they know you by reputation, and a lot of what they think about you is not good. So we're a little nervous about if they actually see you in town now. Here, it's Pentecost. It's a feast day, one of the biggest feast days of the year, and there are people from all over the world, Jews from all over the world, congregating here in Jerusalem, and that's where your reputation goes out far and wide, many times not good among the Jewish Christians. Not to mention Jewish unbelievers who utterly, totally despise you and see you as a traitor. So this is the conversation James and the elders has with Paul. Just after celebrating about all that God had done, what a downer. But it was reality. And then the elders proposed a solution. You know what, Paul? Here's an opportunity maybe for you to do something to show all these Jewish Christians that you actually don't despise the Old Testament, but you actually believe the Old Testament is fulfilled in the New Testament and in Jesus. And what you can do is you can do a purification rite with these four Christian brothers in the temple. Go to the temple and purify yourself according to the law of Moses. And it's a public deal, so people will see you do it. And go with these four brothers and pay for their animal sacrifices, which will cost several hundred dollars. Pay for them. That'll be a great testimony. And go through the purification showing that you have respect and reverence for the temple. You don't want to be defiled. And Paul said, okay, I will. I will submit to you as my, my elders and my leaders. So Paul does it obediently. So he takes these four men, goes in the temple, does a rite. It's, it's strung out for an entire week. He's, they have to make these sacrifices of all these animals, uh, up to eight lambs that are slaughtered and four rams and cereal offerings and whatever else could cost hundreds if not thousands of dollars. It cost Paul. Paul footed the bill. And he went through this ritual publicly and they're thinking maybe that will appease everybody it's not compromising this was not sinful for paul to do this so that's what he did so that's where we left off so let's pick up at verse 27 and and let's see if paul submitting to the elders and doing this public purification in the temple in jerusalem is a good testimony and appeases all these believing jews and so that they now think that Paul, no, he isn't undermining the Old Testament. He actually affirms it and believes it. Let's see if the believing Jews are convinced by that. And so now we look at verse 27. And the title of the sermon today actually answers the question, Paul arrested in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, this is where the temple is. There's only one temple and it's in Jerusalem. That's where sacrifices are made. Paul arrested in uh, Jerusalem. We're going to look at verses 27 to 40, and let's see what happens. I'll pick up at verse 26 of Acts 21. Then Paul took the four men. They were Christians, but they were Jewish. The next day, they go to the temple in obedience to Numbers chapter 6. They do a purifying rite, slaughtering these animals. It's burned. The smoke rises up symbolically to God. God is appeased. Blood was shed. God requires shed blood. God requires death for sin. That's what the slaughtered animals represent. He's a holy God, can't tolerate sin. So he took the men uh, to the temple the next day, purifying himself along with them as they did the sacrifices. They went into the temple. The temple was compartmentalized. There are many places and parts of the temple. On the very outer perimeter of the temple where, where females could go, and then a big outer court where Gentile non-Jews could go. Then apparently there was a big four and a half foot blockade wall 
that separated the Gentiles from where the Jews could go in the inner precinct. So then the next level in the temple, Jews could go into that area. And then even further in, only the priests and Levites were allowed to go. And then in the innermost sanctum, in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go on designated days according to the Mosaic law. So Paul is a Jew. These four believers are Jewish. So he goes through the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and goes into the area where only Jews could go, passing that wall. And we know from history where that wall was in Paul's day, there were signs posted in limestone written in Greek and in Latin. Warning Gentiles, non-Jews, warning, caution, do not proceed past this wall into the inner precinct where only Jews can go. If you do, you are subject to death, thanaton, death, thanatos. Interestingly, uh, archaeology has recovered two of these massive stones with the signs on it in Greek and Latin. We have a picture. There's one right there. That is the actual one that was recovered in 1871, and it's in Turkey today in a museum. And if you read Greek down at the bottom, you can read it. The last word there is thanaton. That's death. That exists today. That was from Herod's temple. It's been found and discovered. There's actually been two of them that have been discovered. Uh, next slide actually is the translation. Here's what it said. No foreigner, meaning non-Jew, may enter within the which is the area where the Jews are, around the sanctuary and the enclosure. Whoever is caught on himself shall he be put, oh, shall he put blame for the death which he shall ensue. And in the Greek, death is the last word there. He will be put to death. So it was known. Everybody knew it. There was a warning. There's no mistake. So it's okay for Paul to go because he was a Jew and his friends were Jews. No problem. But we're going to see in the story where this becomes an issue. So let's go ahead and look at it. I divided 27 to 43 and just three points as we walk through the narrative here. And they're all about Paul and this idea of him being arrested in Jerusalem. So let's look at point number one, verses 27 to 29. He does the purification in the temple. He completes the days of purification, which probably took about seven days until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So then maybe the elders are thinking, oh, this is great. There's going to be peace and harmony, unity, kumbaya, everybody's going to get along. Not, and that's verse 27 and 29. Paul, accu- Paul falsely accused by unbelievers, unbelieving Jews, not Jewish Christians, but unbelieving Jews. Verse, let's look at it. Verse 27. So when the seven days were almost over and Paul did what the elders said to do to show that he honors the Old Testament, he honors Moses, he honors the temple, the Jews from Asia, okay, so this is Acts chapter 20, verse 19. This is Acts chapter 19. The Jews from Asia. Who are these guys? These are unbelieving Jews from Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus for three years. While Paul preached there, the whole city of Ephesus heard the gospel. A lot of people got saved, including unbelieving Jews, but some Jews didn't believe it. And the Jews that lived in Ephesus who didn't believe Paul's message, they got mad at Paul while he was in Ephesus. We are sick of this guy. As a matter of fact, they chased him out of the synagogue. You are not welcome to teach in our synagogue anymore. Okay, fine. And for three years, he was a threat to the unbelieving Jews. Well, these unbelieving Jews in Ephesus, they got to know Paul and some of his associates. And one of the guys that got saved was a guy named Trophimus. 
Paul's friend, a Christian from Ephesus, familiar face. They saw him with Paul. He was part of the entourage. And you got these bloodthirsty, hateful Jews who don't like Paul or Christianity. It is now, so in Ephesus, they saw Paul. Now it's a year later in Jerusalem at a major Jewish feast day, and they want to be faithful Jews, so they travel to Jerusalem where you're supposed to go. But lo and behold, there is Paul, this guy they can't stand. Wait a minute. He was back there in our hometown. What is he doing here? He's a Christian, that false religion. He doesn't believe in Judaism. That's who these guys are. Verse 27, unbelieving Jews from Asia upon seeing Paul in the temple. Now, that was not a crime. Paul was Jewish. He had the right to be in a temple. As a matter of fact, Paul was a rabbi. He was educated by the most prestigious rabbi of his day, Gamaliel. Paul had credentials. But upon seeing him in the temple, they just despise him. Oh, they recognize him. They began to stir up all the crowd. See, they began to gossip. Oh, there's that Paul. There's that. There's a. Hey, let's start. A, let's start uh, some false lies about him. Let's falsely accuse him. Let's say. Let's start telling other Jews that he doesn't like Jews or their Bible or their religion or Moses or they despises the temple. That'll get them riled up because as Jews, they knew what riled up fellow Jews. And that's what they do. So they start stirring up the mob. By the way, Jerusalem at this time is totally impacted. It is broad day. It's a feast day. There are Jews from all over the world congregating in Jerusalem, probably up to two million Jews visiting Jerusalem at the time. And so it's like sardines. There are a lot of Jews to talk to, and there is a grapevine or gossip vine that goes quickly. So news was going to spread rather quickly. And these are committed Jews. That's why they are at the feast day of Pentecost. So they began to stir up all the crowd of Jews to the point where all the Jews got riled up. It doesn't take much to get a mob going. Study mob psychology. We have mobs today. We have flash mobs all over the place especially during political seasons or political issues. They just flash up all over the place. And they just have one thing in common. They just want to make a ruckus and be a part of the crowd. They have one thing in common. They just want to, they want to be destructive. Hey, let's turn over a cop car. Hey, let's throw rocks at the Starbucks windows. Hey, let's make a scene. Maybe we'll get seen on television. That's kind of the common denominator because when you go up and talk to these people, they have no clue what they're doing or why they're angry. Why are you here? What is your purpose? What is your goal? They don't have one. And that's exactly what's going on here. Just stirring up a mob. It's fun to be angry. So they stir up all the crowd. And so what do they do? It says they laid hands on Paul. That phrase is also used for they arrested Paul. They violently grabbed Paul. This is in public. He's just walking around and they come up and tackle him. Dog pile. All at once. We know from a verse later, not only did they grab Paul here, they drag him out of the inner temple area where the Jews could be, and they drag him out to the court of the Gentiles. And then they close the door behind them so that uh, the Jewish area won't be defiled. And so they're out in this massive court of the Gentiles where literally hundreds and even thousands of people could squeeze in there. So that's where they dragged Paul. down the sta- They had to go down the stairs, boom, 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 dragging him down the stairs into the open court, and it says they had hands, and then it says they began to pummel him and beat him. And they were beating him to a pulp. They wanted to kill him. So they're kicking him, punching him, stepping on him, kicking his face in. They are about to kill him. And they're almost successful. That's what's going on here. And they are 
These Jews are crying out with false accusations. Men of Israel, Jews, come to our aid, help us. This is the man, this Paul, who preaches to all men everywhere against our people, the Jews, and against the law of Moses and this place, the temple. That was heresy. That was blasphemy. It required the death penalty in their minds. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That was a lie. They were, they were accusing him of bringing Trophimus, his friend, who was Greek or Gentile, into the area where only Jews could go under penalty of death. That was a lie. He didn't do that. False accusation. Another false accusation is saying that Paul uh, didn't believe in the Mosaic law. He totally did. He preaches from the Mosaic law in the synagogues. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law. The same false accusation is the identical false accusation they made against Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when they killed him on the spot and stoned him to death. They can't come up with anything new. It's just, it is lies, it is gossip, misrepresentation, false accusations, distorting the truth, fake news. Verse 29. Well, how'd they come up with this lie? Well, they'd seen, they previously saw Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the temple grounds in the legitimate area in the court of the Gentiles. But they, they never saw him in illegitimate places because Paul didn't do that. So they just conjured up a lie. Or they just made wrong assumptions. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul's been in and out of the temple. He probably brought a Greek in there. So there it is. They made up a lie. When they say into the temple, they meant into the court of Israel, that inner sanctum where the Gentiles could not go. So Paul, falsely accused by unbelievers. And that was kind of Paul's fate. That's what happened everywhere he went. And by the way, if you're a Christian and you share the gospel, if you just live as a Christian, talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus on a regular basis, wherever you go, inevitably you are going to be falsely accused. People are going to be mad at you, mock you, make fun of you, be intolerant of you, misrepresent you, slander your character. That's just the way it is. Jesus said, the world hates me, John chapter 7. The world hates me. The world hates me, and the world will hate you. But you represent me. So Paul was falsely accused by unbelievers. Then what happened? Verse 30 to 32. Paul brutally attacked after being falsely accused, brutally attacked by the Jews. We saw that first they seized him, and now we're going to learn that they dragged him out of that inner court, down the stairs, into the public court, and they just begin to beat and publicly just abuse him. Almost to death. Verse 30. Then all the city was provoked. All the city. I told you that there were hundreds of thousands of people there. That's how fast the word got around. They're all Jews. By the way, it's a mix now. At Pentecost. There are unbelieving Jews there. But there are also believing Jews. And a lot of them. And it's just mass hysteria. Great confusion. Massive crowd. Why is everybody so upset? Why is everybody getting so angry? Well, there's a man over there, a false teacher. There's a heretic, a cultist. And he is blaspheming the temple. And he's despising God. And he's abusing the law of Moses. Well, oh, and he's also taken Greeks and Gentiles and non-Jews into the inner, inner court. Can you believe it? Now, even if you were a believing Jew in that day and you heard that, immediately you would get defensive and on edge out of righteousness sake it's like wow who's that guy he needs to be shut down even a christian would think that so no doubt there are plenty of christian jews who got sucked up into the mob hysteria who knows that even if some of these misguided misinformed well-intentioned wrong-headed believing christian jews were there kicking the apostle paul it is very possible that happens 
you read the stories of Nazi Germany and the church in Germany all those years for the 15 years of Adolf Hitler's reign. It's like, where's the church? Where are the Christians? What are they doing? Why are they not speaking up? Why are they not standing out? Why are they not coming to the defense of the helpless Jewish people? Then in hindsight, we find out there were actually a lot of Christians who were totally deceived, totally naive, totally ill-informed, many early on following him. Oh, he's a good guy. He's a good leader. He's, he's impressive. He's, he's dogmatic. He's confident in his decisions. He loves, he's a, a, a nationalist. He loves our country. He loves Germans. He loves German music. He loves German culture. That's why I voted for him. These were German Christians saying this. They had blood on their hands. Could be that's part of what's going on here. Sadly, very sad. Then all the city was provoked. The entire city, they're they're provoked. They are angry. See, they're not even thinking. It's all emotion. And the people rushed together, running along. (laughs) Where are they rushing? They're rushing in one direction. I want to get a kick in. I want to throw a rock. Paul's probably on the ground. Then they take hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, as I said, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, as they're beating him up. So all this is going on in the temple court, big court. Now, 2,000 years ago, we know from archaeology, but also from Josephus, who lived during this time. Josephus wrote a lot of information. Very helpful. Josephus said that Uh, Next to the temple outer walls, Herod the Great, in about 35 B.C., before Christ, built a massive military fortress right next to the temple and the temple walls. And it was called uh, the Fortress of Antonia. And it rose up, I don't know, 600 feet or so, and it had four towers on it, and one was higher than the other. And it literally, you could see the city, but it literally oversaw the temple courtyard. And apparently it had a staircase that went directly down into the court of the Gentiles. Fort Antonia. 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 Herod named it after Mark Antony. Fort Antonia. 35 B.C. Mark Antony, the Roman general under Caesar. Amazing leader. Pagan. Ruthless. And in Fort Antonia... Roman soldiers were there, a garrison of Roman soldiers. At this time, there is a Chiliarch, a commander in charge of over a thousand troops, is there. I don't, he maybe even lived there. This fort was so big, it could house 200 plus Roman soldiers in full garb. So in this fortress, connected to the temple, overseeing the court of the Gentiles, with a staircase going directly down into the court, is this Roman fortress with Claudius Lysias is his name. He is the commander. He's up there. They're watching, and all of a sudden, they just see this tumult break out, all kinds of noise and hysteria, and the Roman soldiers are looking down. Whoa, what is going on there? This is getting out of control. And if there is one thing that Caesar wanted to maintain in the Roman Empire, one rule that everybody had to abide by, wherever they went and conquered territories in the Roman government, is they would give certain cities and certain regions and areas autonomy if they would just maintain order. Keep things civil. You can believe whatever you want to believe and conduct your affairs however you want to. We'll give you freedom and liberty, but you must resist civil unrest. You must maintain the control of the crowds. That's the one thing we will not tolerate. No insurrection. And they had a a heavy iron fist about it. 
the Romans did. So that's what the Romans are looking for. Now, the Romans, they had a challenge with Judea because for the last two to three hundred years, uh, there were some zealous Jews going out and killing Gentiles all the time, killing Roman soldiers with little ni- secret knives. And they'd go incognito and secretly and subtly into corners and get behind Roman soldiers and knife them in the neck and kill them. And this is going on for, for decades and decades and even a couple of hundred years to the point where Roman soldiers uh, and Roman governors and even Caesar himself said, wow, man, those Jewish people, woo, we, we can't shut them down. So let's just give them what they want. They can have their temple. They can worship there. They can worship their Yahweh. We won't bring any idolatry into their temple, even though we do that everywhere else. We'll give them an exception. We'll even let the high priest keep his high priestly garb in the fortress of Antonia, where he needs to use it once a year. We'll even help them keep the order in civil unrest so that the Jews have a Jew that gets out of control. We will help them squelch that. We'll do the bidding of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin and shut those rebels down that are Jewish for them, and they did. So there was kind of a partnership here that was unique among the the Jews and the Romans. That's what's going on here. So here's Claudius in his fortress, and the watchmen are atop. They see it. It explodes. They immediately notify the commander. The commander probably looks over the edge. Whoa, haven't seen this in a while. Let's go. And he immediately calls two centurions who are in charge of a 100 soldiers each and says, down now. And immediately, probably within minutes, as many as 200-plus soldiers are down there in the court of the Gentiles, along with the commander himself taking the lead and in charge, trying to muscle his way through the crowd in full garb all the way to the point where this man is being beaten to a bloody pulp. That's what's going on. So verse 31, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came to the commander, to the Chiliarch, to the chief captain, to the tribune, he's called in the ESV. His name is Claudius. In charge of a thousand soldiers. He was of the Roman garrison or the Roman cohort. That all Jerusalem was in upheaval and confusion. And at once, immediately, so he took action. Verse 32, at once he took along some soldiers and centurions a plurality of centurions, a plurality of guys who were in charge of a hundred soldiers. That's why we know there were a couple of hundred soldiers involved in this. That is a, a bunch of policemen. Can you imagine how big the crowd needs to be to overwhelm 200 armed policemen? Number one, it has to be massive in terms of its numbers and, and how violent and without conscience they need to be to overcome 200 armed policemen. We see that today. You see a tumult and you're wondering, well, why are the police not shutting them down? Why aren't the police uh, shooting out tear gas? Why aren't the police, why are they just letting them do this? Many times they're outnumbered. Well, that's what's going on here. So they run down into the court, try to get to Paul. Verse 32 says, at once he took along some soldiers and centurions. He ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, so when the crowd saw the commander, uh oh, here he comes. And all the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Here come the police. There's Paul laying on the ground. Well, then what happened? Verse 33. First, Paul was falsely accused and brutally attacked. And finally, Paul is suddenly arrested. Suddenly. We saw this in Acts 16. Where people start beating up Paul and accusing him. And the first thing that the civil authorities do, they don't ask questions. So, wait, who are you? Why are you here? What happened? Kate, you tell your side of the story. Kate, and you tell your side of the story. That didn't happen. 
It was they just went up to Paul and they chained him up and threw him in prison. It wasn't you are innocent until proven guilty. That is not how they operate. And they don't operate this, this way either. So the Roman soldier goes down. It's good that they stopped beating Paul, but he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, can you, what happened? What, who are you? What, tell your story. We'll listen to your side and then we'll tell, we'll listen to their story. It's immediately gets there and, oh, here's the troublemaker. Chain him. Oh, here he is. You're under arrest. That's what he did. Verse 33. That's what he was supposed to do. Job number one, Roman commander, if there is a mob, you need to squelch it, ASAP. Find the catalyst, shut it down. So in his mind, he's just doing the job. Then the commander, the Chiliarch, the tribune, the captain came up and took hold of him. So he grabs Paul, ordered him to be bound with two chains. So some would say, that's chains on the feet, chains on the hands. Others say that was chains on one hand by one Roman soldier and chains on another hand by another two Roman soldiers. Keep in mind, Paul doesn't have any weaponry. He's totally defenseless. Probably half dead. So he's, he's chained up. Then the commander starts asking questions. He began asking who he was, but he didn't ask Paul. He's just asking the crazy mob. He began asking who he was. Okay, okay, you're, you threw a couple of rocks. What are, what are you doing? Who is this guy? Person throwing rocks didn't know. Okay, I saw you throw a punch. Wait, who is he? Why are you punching? That I can't hear you. The crowd is too loud. What? That doesn't make any... You don't know? You punched him and you don't know why? You don't even know who he... That's what he's doing. Investigative duties. Getting no answers. Began asking who he was, what he had done. Verse 34, but among the crowd... Some were shouting one thing and some another. So totally contradictory. This, this is mob violence. It's still the same today. And when he had come, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar was so loud, he ordered that Paul be brought into the barracks. What's the barracks? That's where the Roman soldiers were hanging out from where they came. That's Fort Antonia. Okay, man, we got to get him out of here. This is just crazy. Let's get this guy. And so, hey, you soldiers, hey, you armed soldiers with your long swords and your big hats. Take that pole guy through the crowd and bring him into the barracks. Let's get him out of here. Well, the crowd was not intimidated, the Roman soldiers at all. As a matter of fact, they get angry that the Roman soldiers are trying to take Paul away. They couldn't finish the deal. Verse 34, but among the crowd, some were shout. So they start shouting. Shouting one thing and some another. And when he could find not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him uh, to be brought into the barracks. Verse 35. And when he got to the stairs, so when they so they take Paul, escort him. He gets to the stairs. He's about to go up into leading to the barracks. Something happened. The Roman soldiers had to actually pick Paul up and lift him up and carry him through the crowd because the crowd was so violent, pressing in on the Roman soldiers, wanting to get at Paul, wanting to kill Paul. Amazing. This is just incarnate hatred. So, tries to go up the stairs. He was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people kept following them, Shouting. So they, they are following the Roman soldiers and they're shouting away with him, away with him. Oh, you know, those are the exact 
same words in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John of what the crowds said about Jesus. Away with this man. Oh, what? Crucify him. Exact same words. The exact same location around the temple 27 years previously by some of the exact same people. Unbelievable. So what's going on? So they're screaming out, away with him. Verse 30, so they don't want justice. This is sinful, wicked behavior. This is human nature. This is how humans are. This is no different from today. This is humanity for the last 6,000 years of human history because of the hardness of the human heart until it's changed by Jesus. Verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, so they finally, you know, they're lifting him up and he's about to get into the barracks and away from the crowd. But before he does, Paul being the leader that he is, the man trusting God, the courageous saint that he was, uh, he's prompted to take action, and he does. And he said to the commander, keeping in mind he's all bloodied and bruised and beaten and probably blood coming out of his mouth and his lips are all puffed up. And he actually says to the commander, the guy in charge, may I say something to you? Excuse me, sir, may I say something to you? And that kind of startled the the Roman soldier in charge. Whoa. Why was he startled? Well, because Paul said it in Greek. Kind of, he realized immediately that Paul was educated, Paul was sophisticated, and Paul wasn't the guy that I assumed him to be. So the Roman soldier just immediately assumed this guy was a false prophet and a hooligan and a charlatan from four years previous when some self-proclaimed leader from Egypt who was uneducated and didn't know Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic came from Egypt four years prior. And Josephus writes about this. And he he proclaimed to be a prophet of the Jews and he was he was successful in mustering a whole bunch of people to follow him. And he led a whole bunch of people to the Mount of Olives and told them God is going to intervene on their behalf and make the walls fall down flat, and when it does, we will go in and we will take over. And then Felix caught wind of this guy, and Felix sent Roman soldiers and snuffed him out, slaughtered many of his followers, but he got away. He snuck away. It was four years prior to this event. So the commander may very well have been either there or he was very familiar with this guy. And so he just assumed, oh, that guy, the Egyptian guy is back. Finally, we got him. So that's what he thinks. So when Paul speaks to him in Greek and says, can I talk to you? He gets his attention and realizes, wow, this is not the Egyptian phony I was thinking of. This is somebody else. And at the end of verse 37, and he said, do you know Greek? Verse 38, and then the commander says so to Paul, then you are not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins. Assassin is the Greek word sakaria which refers to a little dagger that you could kind of you could hide it under your cloak, you could hide it in your thigh, and that's what they used, the zealots, to pull it out at the opportune time. These were terrorists of the first order. Aren't you a leader of the terrorists? I thought you were a leader of the terrorists, the Egyptian leader of the terrorists. The Egyptian Arab terrorist. Some things have not changed with time. It's amazing. No. That isn't who this is. A revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. But Paul said, I'm a Jew, not Egyptian. I'm of Tarsus in Cilicia. Tarsus was a very significant city, an educated city. It stood out 
a citizen of no insignificant city. I beg you, allow me to speak to the mob. Well, the commander just must have been uh, couldn't bewildered by that. Wow, seriously, they just beat you up and you want to talk to this crowd? Like they're going to listen to you? I went around with my sword. I couldn't hear anybody. They couldn't talk to me. I couldn't quiet the crowd. I couldn't bring order. That's what I do for prophet. You're going to do that? Maybe that's what he's thinking. He doesn't know that he's dealing with the Apostle Paul, though. Verse 40, so then he gave Paul permission. And so here's Paul, all bloody. And then finally the soldiers let him down because he's up the stairs away from the crowd. And they're probably just screaming, foaming at the mouth. They're still loud. This cacophonous crowd, deafening, out of control, wanting death. And then Paul stands up on the stairs, overseeing them all, standing on the stairs, and he motioned to the people with his hand. And all of a sudden there was a hush over the crowd. Amazing. Whatever he did got their attention. And when there was a great hush, so it was just instantaneous. Amazing. God was with Paul. First of all, the courage to do that. I mean, what would your attitude towards be towards a crowd that just beat you up and they wanted to kill you? Mine would be revenge. I am an apostle. I call down heaven from Almighty God upon your head. Now, burn. Now, Christians would never do that. Wait, James and John did that. That's right, the sons of thunder. James and John. And Jesus said, don't do that. But that didn't end the story because Jesus said, someday I'll send two other guys. They're not James and John. They're the two prophets during the tribulation. And they get to do that. They will call fire from heaven. That probably made James and John very jealous. We want to be the two witnesses of Revelation 11. No, sorry. That's reserved for somebody else. But anyway, that's just human nature. I want revenge. Uh, I want to tell you guys that you are wrong. But Paul doesn't do that. He, has a me- he is on message, filled with the Spirit, motioning with his hands, gains an audience, hundreds if not thousands of people who near- need to hear the gospel. This is amazing. Jesus did tell the apostles, not Paul, but the, the, in the Gospels, that I'm going to warn you. When you go out and preach the Gospel, people are going to hate you. They're going to resist you. And uh, particularly some of the Jewish leadership, they're going to shut you down. They're going to arrest you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to bring you before their courts. And when they do, when you go before them on trial, do not worry about what you will say. For the Spirit of God will speak through you at that time. Trust me. Luke 12:12. 12, 12. And I believe that was a promise Paul received as well. He was an apostle. He's resting in Jesus. He's not in a panic. He tries to work all things together for good because he knows that's what God does. And he's got a captive audience now. And the hush goes over the crowd. And then he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, means Aramaic. Not, he didn't speak in Hebrew. It was the Hebrew dialect. It was the, the dialect of the Hebrew people. It was the dialect of the Jews. It was Aramaic. And he began speaking to the people in Aramaic, and, and immediately that gets their attention. It's like, wow, he just spoke Greek. He's educated, sophisticated, and now he's speaking Aramaic fluently better than any of us. Wow, he, he must be one of us. Where did this guy come from? So there's just one thing after another that happens that gets their attention, including the, command, the Roman commander who's watching all this in utter awe. He doesn't know what's going on. 
And we're going to see that in the next two chapters. The impact that the man, the character, the words, the ministry of the Apostle Paul has instantly on this pagan, unbelieving Roman commander. I, I wonder when it was all said and done that God just continued to pursue that man. And what Paul said softened his heart and saved that guy. Will we see Claudius in heaven? I don't know. There's a good possibility because that happened at the cross with Jesus when Roman soldiers were standing there for six hours. The very men who put the nails in his hands after six hours watching Jesus the Savior on the cross and listening to his seven merciful, gracious sayings from the cross because he loved sinners. One of those Roman soldiers was totally convicted and indeed this was the Son of God. I bet that Roman soldier got saved. We'll see him in heaven. Does that happen with Claudius? I don't know. And then he begins to preach in Aramaic. And he said, and we'll come back next. We can find out. Amazing. Awesome testimony from the Apostle Paul. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the treasure of your word. And we thank you for the opportunity to fellowship with the saints. Pray now, Lord, with your spirit, you go before us. We would think of you today and throughout the week that you would help us because we are weak. Jesus, you said it. Um, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Help us to please you, obey you, serve you. God, but we need your help. We need your grace. We need the, the spirit of God. We need accountability from other believers. We need the food from your word. And I, I just pray that you enable us uh, to do that, that we're prompted to do that so that we might live in a way that pleases you. Help us to be bold witnesses wherever we go. Help us to not fear resistance, rejection, humiliation, persecution. But remembering the story, knowing we can turn that into a platform for your glory. That's our heart's desire as we commit it all to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650 630 0009.